Uh, Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 7. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I've already introduced myself. You know who I am. Um, I'll ask you to pray with me, though. Let's, let's get together and just pray now that the Lord would work. Father, we come to you as children, as your children, but with our hands uh, just outstretched and needy. Uh, Father, we ask, would you work? Would you work by your Holy Spirit now? Lord, would you cause us to see Jesus? Would you lift him up in our hearts? Would you glorify him amongst us, Lord, that we would love him? be changed by him, that the Holy Spirit would work powerfully to bring life to us. Lord, we we depend upon you to do this, and we ask that you would do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So as we jump in this morning, I have a question uh, to start off with, and it's just this. Is Vancouver a merciful city? I mean, mercy, on the one hand, is a pretty churchy word, right? And so maybe we're not used to thinking about Vancouver and mercy together. Maybe we use a different word. I think one word that that maybe approximates mercy in some ways, there's a lot of differences, but one word that maybe you'll hear more often about Vancouver is the word empathy. Is Vancouver an empathetic city? Is it an empathy-filled city? And of course, empathy is defined as the capacity to understand or to feel what someone else is experiencing. So kind of the the idea or the the capacity to put yourself squarely in someone else's shoes and imagine what they're experiencing from their perspective. It's something that we praise, I think, in this city, and it's a little bit like mercy. I actually read in an article uh, in the Georgia Strait this week. Um, It was this article that was praising the empathy-building multicultural uh, festivals that we've had here in the city over this past year. And talked about the Richmond World Fest, talked about the Taiwan Fest, it talked about the, uh, the Indian Summer Series. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's a festival or a series. You may have seen some of their displays uh, down on the, the seawall or something. And it was praising all of these events for the way that it's actually worked together to, was to some degree to build, I think, some greater empathy for uh, those of different cultures in our own city. I mean, there's a lot of good things that, that are part of that. That's awesome. We, we do praise God for uh, increased appreciation for uh, the cultures that he's made in this world. I mean, I'm really thankful that we're not just all Northern Europeans, uh, you know, of white descent like me. I'm really thankful for that. And it's a beautiful thing to learn to appreciate the way that God has made diversity in this world. However, here's my question. When we think about this question of, you know, is Vancouver merciful? Uh, and the way that I think we commonly think of, of mercy in the city, maybe more along the lines of, of empathy. I think we were struck still with the fact that this, this world isn't what we'd like it to be, right? It's still quite a galvanized and polarized and divided place. Is that true? I think we see that, you know, in, in different political conflicts and other things like that, but we still see there's a long way to grow. And so the question is this, the question is in light of that, in light of that, is mercy then the thing, sorry, is empathy the thing that will change it? Is empathy enough to bring about true flourishing and blessing and happiness in this world? Will empathy 
make the difference? Will empathy bring a better world? You know, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that we commonly think of, of this idea, but I don't think that empathy will be enough. And neither does Jesus. You see, it's not by accident that Jesus said here in Matthew 5, verse 7, he said, blessed are the merciful. He said, flourishing are the merciful. Happy are the merciful. He didn't say, blessed are those who are kind. He didn't say, blessed are those who have a capacity to be uh, emotionally connected with others or to have a certain kind of compassion. He said, no, blessed are the merciful. And what I think we see, and we, I want to try and you know, highlight for you, is that there's actually a chasm between empathy and mercy. They're not the same thing. And in this fifth beatitude, Jesus actually invites us to something that's better than empathy. As he stands on the mountain and he teaches us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what's going on here? What's, what's happening in this beatitude? What is this mercy then that Jesus is talking about? And what is the blessing that goes along with it? What are these things? Well, we're going to jump into it this morning, and we're going to look at uh, first uh, a few stages, and we're, we're going to try to explain all of that. And number one, we're going to try and see um, what happens when we remove God from the picture, and we have kind of a worldly empathy versus a biblical blessing, a biblical, sorry, a biblical mercy. So we're going to look at, first point, mercy and me. And then second, we're going to jump in, and we're going to look at what is mercy then, not in the worldly sense, not in the empathy sense, but in the biblical sense that's defined by God. We're going to look at mercy and God. Second point, mercy and God. And then third, we're going to look at what does it take then to be transformed, to be from, from what we are right now and move towards what God has called us to be. And we're going to look at the third point, which is mercy in us. So three points, uh, mercy and me, uh, mercy and God, and then mercy in us. So what is mercy? Look at our first point with me, mercy in me. Well, the Catholic theologian Matthew Schmaltz, he defines mercy pretty helpfully. We've looked at a, I've looked at a number of definitions. I think this one's you know, it's pretty good. There's a lot of different pros and cons to different definitions. But this one, I think, is pretty great. And he says this. He says, mercy is love that responds to human need in an unexpected or an unmerited way. Love that responds to human need in an unexpected or an unmerited way. And if you think about it, this, def- this definition, it does have some overlap with maybe what Vancouver would think of when they think of the word empathy. But there's still a difference there. What is that difference? How, how do they differ? Well, I think in an important way, they differ in this way. Because implicit behind empathy and behind mercy is a standard of judgment of some kind. Right? Because you have to decide who gets the empathy. You make a judgment on who is worthy and who is deserving of mercy. There's a standard of judgment behind these things. And the difference between mercy and empathy is that biblical mercy has God at the center as the righteous judge and the grantor of mercy. Whereas worldly mercy, or this this empathy I've been talking about, has you or me at the center as a righteous judge who grants empathy to those that we deem are worthy. All right. So there's a different person at the center, either God at the center or you and me at the center, as we conceive of these things. And I think for you and I to be at the center of this, this kind of worldly empathy, I think that's a bad thing. I think it's a very bad thing. And I think three, I think three terrible things happen when we are at the center of this idea of empathy rather than God. I want to just walk through those with you right now as we look at this point, mercy and me. 
So first, the first bad thing that happens is that the standard by which we judge others, when it's left to us, it starts to drift. It's not a stable standard. It moves around like crazy. So consider this. When you were kids, right, or when, when your grandparents were kids, rather, uh, there is a certain standard by which they lived their lives. Uh, there's a certain rule of measurement uh, about who deserved mercy and who didn't, right? But the thing is, much of what our grandparents believed is vilified today, right? It, it's changed. And right now, we're having our bright day in the sun, right? You know, we are, you know, we're the righteous people. We, we've de- deemed ourselves to be deeply righteous, and, and we've judged ourselves as being in the right. But here's the caution. Our bright day in the sun will probably end too. What's going to happen two or three or four generations from now? Will we be seen as heroes of our culture or will we be seen as horrors? Will we be those who are given mercy uh, far and distant from now, years from now, or will we be those who are judged? So the standard changes around when we're at the center. And I think it's a problem. The second problem is that when we're at the center of all of this is that we become indifferent. Think when we're the center of empathy, we can actually become indifferent to the suffering of the people around us. Because if it's dependent upon you or I to summon up the empathy and the care and the moral action to act on another's behalf, if we had to do that all on our own, I don't think we're going to do it. I think we'll see suffering and we'll be overwhelmed by it and we'll withdraw from it. We'll pull back because we'll realize I can't bear this. It's too burdensome for me. I'm not sufficient to care about these things. And actually, I think it's funny, but in our culture, this has kind of become a bit of a humble break, hasn't it? Right? Where, where you can walk around and you're like, you know, I'm a pretty empathetic person. And because I'm so high in empathy, I actually can't care or be around those people that are suffering too much because it will drain me. You know, I'm too empathetic to really, to really deeply care for the suffering. And it's this funny, like, self-righteous humblebrag uh, that, that justifies you not caring very deeply about those around you. I can't spend so much time with that person. You know, they drain me. I'm just too empathetic. I'm just too empathetic. You know, when you're at the center of empathy, you find you aren't sufficient to care. So actually what you do is you swing the pendulum the other direction and you quarantine your, ha- your heart off, I think, from caring in a deep way at all. And it's a problem that happens. I don't know about you, but I've... I've really experienced this in my own life. I've deeply experienced this. There's a time uh, when I was in my, my late teens when I lived for several months in the country of Zambia in Africa. And I lived there with my family in an orphanage uh, for kids that had HIV and AIDS. And we lived there. And while we were there, we visited orphanages where children lay in their cribs and they were unattended. They were expressionless. They, they didn't make any sound because they learned not to cry because nobody was coming. While we were there, we saw people that were starving to death on the streets. We saw children die, emaciated, and horribly ravaged by AIDS. And we even attended their funerals. We, we got together and we, we paid for the funeral. We, we made it happen and we went to these things. We visited hospitals where patients languished in their misery and they were, you know, hospital rooms with broken windows and with cabinets that were empty of the medication they needed. Burn victims and tuberculosis patients that didn't have any pain medication or any medication they needed at all. How do you take it all in? And how do you respond to that? I distinctly being remember, I distinctly remember being afraid of what I saw. 
I didn't want to be present with those diseases. I didn't want to be near to them. And I pulled back. I was almost automatic where something in my heart recoiled and insulated myself from the ugliness of that suffering as I looked it in the face. It was too much. I pulled back. You know, it was selfish. I'm pretty deeply ashamed of it, to be honest, of how I, I reacted in my heart towards the situations. But I did it. And I did it because I cared a lot more about me than I did about those people. I was selfish and I was indifferent. Maybe it wasn't a complete indifference, but I certainly didn't want to enter deeply into the need and the suffering of those around me because it was beyond me. I wasn't sufficient for it. And I pulled back. But you, I think, do the same thing. It's not just me. It's all of us we do this. You even here, maybe in this community, you maybe see people who are in need of mercy, but you look away because you're just too busy to care. You can't take on their burdens. You say, you know, there's just too much going on right now. How could I draw close to that person when that person drains me so much to be around? I can't be around them. Or maybe it's just that people are hurting and you're aware of the suffering of people in this room, but it's too emotional. Like, I, I don't want to come into that. I know the Bible calls me to weep with those who weep, but how can I draw near to that? You know, that's, that's too much. I want to be able to stay at home and maybe, maybe watch Parks and Rec in the office, you know, and, and just have a good old time. But if I let this suffering deeply into my life, it's going to kind of upset the norm for me. I can't do this. And so you avert your eyes and you actually treat the suffering with indifference rather than mercy when you're at the center of it. There's a third terrible thing, though, that happens when you and I are the judges that decide who gets mercy and who doesn't. When we're at the center. The third thing is this. The third thing is that we actually become vengeful tyrants. That might sound crazy to you, but I think it's true. I'll, I'll try to prove it to you. Um, I'll try to prove it to you this way. Fritz Breithaupt, who teaches at Indiana University, he's the author of a book called The Dark Sides of Empathy. And he writes this. I'm quoting from a CBC article where I found him. It's really interesting. He says, people seem to be increasingly selective about who they feel is worthy of empathy. We have certain triggers and blocks of empathy. And one of the strongest triggers of empathy is some dynamic of taking sides when we observe a conflict. It can be as harmless as a sports game, but it can also be an argument we witness or even political tensions. And we tend to take sides very quickly. And then once we take a side, we take their perspective and we start to share their feelings and we start to get this. We start to demonize the other side. The problem with you and I becoming the judges who decide who is worthy of our empathy is that our standard of judgment on our own is so strongly influenced by who you like and who you don't, who I like and who I don't. It's deeply biased. It's a deeply biased judgment. It's not an equitable, just judgment. And when arguments heat up, then you don't typically leave the, the judgment in the hands of someone else, right? You don't like, you don't say, okay, you know, great job, ref. You know, I totally see where that call is coming from. You know, I agree with that. No, you take a side. You don't say, you know, that's a great argument, political pundit from the other side. Uh, I appreciate the nuance and the depth. Um, no, you don't. You tend to take out the sword in your hand and to respond with demand for justice, but a justice as you see it. Where's the justice as I see it? Where's the justice as I see it? You know, I don't know about you. I do know about you, but I'm going to say it softly. I don't know about you, but I do this all the time. You do it too. We do this. It's easy to see, I think, 
It's even, I think, even to be present in this community, in this church, and to look at other people in this kind of just self-righteous judgment way that doesn't extend mercy. We do it all the time, right? We look at the way, you know, someone else maybe in this community is suffering, and you think, you know what? But I see how they got there, and they kind of deserve it, Right? You're like, you know, look at, look at how miserable they are. Yeah, but, you know, if I was in their situation, I would have done X, Y, and Z, and they didn't, and they didn't. And so, I mean, I'm sorry, but that's where they're at. You know, you, you can't, you just judge. I think, this, I think this happens all the time. We think that we, we think that they deserve what they've got, and we actually have a heart that's not merciful, but that's condemning towards them. Doesn't extend mercy, doesn't extend grace. So to sum this up, with what happens when, when I'm at the center, this idea of mercy and, and me without God, well, number one, what happens is that we become deeply relative to our own personal standard, that the judgment moves around and changes generation to generation. Number two, we can become indifferent towards others as we try to insulate our hearts from caring too deeply. And number three, we tend towards these tyrannical and harsh judgments that aren't merciful. And they're based just on how we see things and what other people we deem deserve. So remember, though, mercy is, this is the definition again, mercy is love that responds with compassion to human need in an unexpected or an unmerited way. When we are the standard that decides who gets mercy rather than God, it's pretty miserable. But the mercy of the Bible, praise God, it doesn't actually have you and I at the center. Praise God for that. It's not you and me who are at the center of this. Look at mercy and God, our our second point with me. No, the mercy of the Bible has God at the center, and he is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge, and he extends his mercy, and that's good news for us. It's good news because he's unchanging. It's good news because his standard doesn't shift around at all. It's good news because he isn't vindictive and petty and biased like you and I. No, God makes his judgments, and he extends his mercy from the basis of who he is as a perfect person who always does what is right time and again who does what is good who does what is wonderful as god overall and at root this god is fundamentally a god who sees our needs praise god he looks into our lives he sees our suffering our need and he responds with mercy i want to consider this by looking way back into the the first part of the bible in the book of exodus to see how God reveals himself to his people in scripture. When he reveals himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, to a man named Moses, he says this. He refers to himself. He says, this is who God is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't that beautiful? Just full of mercy. But then look at this second part, because this, this strikes us. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I think what's incredible about this text, this declaration of who God is, is that it is full of, of mercy and love in that first bit. But then it has this This striking and shocking and terrifying justice in the second half. But we need to see something here. We need to see that God is both the giver of mercy. 
he's also the righteous judge who condemns the guilty. And we need to understand that they go together. That God is both merciful and just. He's the mercy giver, but he's the judge. And only the righteous judge can give true mercy. I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to come back to this. We're going to look at that again, how the righteous judge gives true mercy. But I want to stop here and think with you for a second about this. Because we need to realize this morning that there is, there is, brothers and sisters, there is, Christ City, a standard of right and wrong in this world. But it's not my standard. And it's not your standard. It's God's standard. He's the righteous one. He's the one who determines what is right and what is good. And the thing is, you and I, all of us here, have fallen egregiously short of God's righteous standard. Romans 3 verse 10 says clearly, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. We're guilty. No one here in this room, no one on this planet, is worthy of the mercy and the blessing of God. And yet, and yet God has made a way to meet us, you and me, not with judgment, but with compassion and with mercy. So how does God do that? How can God be both the, the just one and the merciful one? How can he judge us, see us in our sin and what we deserve, but then extend mercy and grace to us? Well, this way, when God sees our need and he doesn't walk past us, he doesn't avert our eyes, God sees our need and he comes to us. In the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 speaks of the way that God saved us through Jesus. And it says this. Hebrews 2 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Since therefore God's creation, his beloved children are human. They're fleshy. They have blood. They have flesh. They have bones. Because of that, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. God in Jesus Christ, came to us. In our need, he extended a hand of mercy and became human. God took on and added humanity to his deity in the person of Jesus. He saved us from alongside us. Look, God's not like I was. He's not like me in Zambia. He's not aloof and distant from the suffering of his creation. But he intimately enters into it, even taking on our own flesh and blood to be present in it with us and to save us from it. Look at this quote from the excellent theologian and writer Donald McLeod. I love this quote. Talking about Jesus and the way that he has entered into our suffering. He says, Jesus lived his incarnate life experiencing pain, poverty, and temptation. Witnessing squalor and brutality. Hearing obscenities and profanities and the hopeless cry of the oppressed. He lived not in sublime detachment or in ascetic isolation, but with us. As a fellow man of all men, crowded, busy, harassed, stressed, and molested. No large estate gave him space. No financial capital guaranteed his daily bread. No personal staff protected him from interruptions, and no power or influence protected him from injustice. He saved us from alongside of us. You know, God wasn't indifferent. God didn't see our suffering. He didn't insulate himself from our pain. God left his throne and he walked on earth as you and I do. So what we call Jesus, his name is Emmanuel. He's God with us, who's come to us. He's with us. He came to us. And actually in Matthew 9.36, we read this incredible statement from the lips of Jesus. Look at what 9.36 says in Matthew about Jesus. It says, 
when Jesus then, after taking on flesh and being, in his pe- being around his people, being with his people as a human, he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, Jesus, who is fully God, he could have come to earth and he could have looked at us and he could have despised us. He would have been right to judge us. To extract perfect justice from us. But he didn't. He came and he looked at us in our faces. He saw, he saw the humanity, the, the image of God that he created within us. And he saw us on our suffering and he responded with compassion and with mercy. He didn't avert his eyes. He looked at us eye to eye, person to person. And he loved us. You know, to all who come to Jesus, to all who came to Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus responds to those. And he says, I will. I will have mercy on you. But I want to come back to that little bit that we were talking about, about God being the just one as well as the mercy giver. Because the question for us, I think, here is, how can a just God who sees human sin and who punishes it perfectly, how can he be perfectly merciful to us? How can he both be just and the justifier, the mercy giver? He's right to judge us. I mean, he created us to love him and to love others, and we haven't done either, right? And we've messed up this place that he's given us, this place we call home. Well, God shows us mercy in exactly this unexpected way that we're talking about. God shows us mercy by taking his justice and unleashing it on himself. In order to show true mercy to us, God showed no mercy to Jesus. You know, it was humanity that deserved the punishment of God. So, God added humanity to his deity. Jesus became human. So he could take that punishment himself in our place. He did it at the cross. And brothers and sisters, I don't think we comprehend this morning how brutal and how awful the cross is. The cross is horrific. It was designed not just to kill, not just to torture, but to dehumanize. You know, PBS had a documentary back in the 80s, 1981. It was called The Christians. And in that documentary, they talk about this dehumanizing and defacing of the cross and and its place in Christian religion. And the quote is this. It's amazing how they say this. They say, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and the degradation of its God. It's incredible. The cross is shameful and horrific. God came to earth not to die a glorious death of a martyr, the death of some prince, you know, to, to, you know, you have to die, but we're going to do it the nice clean way. No, he came to earth to die the shameful death of a criminal, a nobody, the faceless and shapeless refuse of humanity. In Isaiah 53 verse 3, there's a prophecy talking about Jesus in exactly this way. It says, he was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
So here's the question. What compelled God to come to earth to be desecrated, spit upon, defied, defamed, defiled, abhorred, despised, assaulted, molested, shamed, tortured, insulted, vilified, and then killed? It was his mercy. It was his loving compassion for his children. A loving compassion that saw in us the travesty and the brokenness of our own sin, but that was willing to to come and enter into it to save us from it. That mercy, that mercy can change us. It can transform us. Turn with me to our last point. Mercy in us. Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, on our own, we aren't merciful. We've seen that. But God, in showing us his mercy through Jesus, he's worked powerfully to take sinful and selfish people like you and I, who are naturally vengeful and indifferent towards others and their suffering, and he's worked to cause us to become merciful as Jesus is merciful. To work in us, to change us from who we were to become like him, to be transformed by his mercy. But let me be clear here, because this needs to be said. Blessed are the mercy, for they will receive mercy is not karma. It's not karma. Sounds a little bit like it, doesn't it? You know, do this stuff, and other good stuff will happen to you. That's not what this verse is talking about. The thing is, we've just talked about what you deserve, which is what karma talks about. And you don't want what you deserve. Trust me, you don't want the judgment of God against you. That's not a good thing. Bono, the, leader of, uh, the lead singer of U2, he got this right. He famously wrote, he says, I don't want karma. I don't want it. I want grace. Because I don't want what I deserve. Because I want mercy, what I don't deserve. Karma can't change us. Getting what we deserve won't change us. It will lead us to this place of judgment and horror. Getting mercy from God, that can change you. That can transform you and renew you and make you whole. Receiving the mercy of God can can bless you as you become filled with the life of God. As you're freed from your sin. As you're given life that is truly life. As you have hope for a world one day where you'll be forever in his presence and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. When he will make all things right. Receiving the mercy of God, we who don't deserve it, that can change us. It's changed me. It's changed me. You know, I'm not, I'm not the sort of person that, that I'd like to be. <laughs> Got a long ways to grow. Many of you know that about me. You've had coffees with me. You've, you've been in my life and you see, man, this brand's got all, he's got all kinds of issues. It's true. But I'm not the person that I used to be. I'm not the person that I was in Africa as a young man. God's been changing me little by little by his mercy. And honestly, as I've thought about this, and I've thought about this sermon, and we've you know, been working this week, this was a hard sermon, such a difficult sermon to think about and to write. Because it's so convicting. Because I'm reflecting on the mercy of God in a way that's breaking my heart open and showing me how deeply unmerciful I actually am. It's hard. But it's good. 
He's exposing me more to Jesus and more of his grace comes into my heart and he's changing me more and more and more. And he's not just doing it to me. He's not just compelling me by his gospel. He's just not just causing me to fall more in love with Jesus, more in love with his grace and be changed by him and filling me up with his life. No, he's doing that to you too. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, he is working on you through the good news of the message about the mercy of Jesus to change you from who you used to be to become more and more merciful as Jesus is merciful. And as great as you and I are, he didn't start with us. He didn't start with us. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. And before that, in the lives of those who followed him before Jesus came. For the first Christians living in the first couple of centuries after Jesus, his mercy transformed them to care for those that no one in their society cared for. Jesus' life took root in these people, and through the good news about his mercy, it transformed them. They welcomed the orphan, famously, and the widow, famously, the filthy, the emaciated, the destitute, and the despised by that society, and they welcomed them into their homes. And people noticed. The Emperor Julian, I love this quote, he, he famously had complained in the 4th century about Christians. He complained that they were making uh, those who followed the Roman pantheon. He said, they're making us look bad. These people are making us look bad because they're so merciful to poor people. And he wrote this. He said, the impious Galileans, that's the Christians. The impious Galileans, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us because of the Christians. Because they've been transformed by Jesus' mercy. And throughout the centuries, the mercy of God, when received by people like you and I, He's worked in them to create real mercy and blessing and transformation century after century and in country after country where the good news of the gospel message has gone. Hospitals and orphanages and schools and centers of technology have been established throughout the world for the past 2,000 years by Christians who saw a need and in love met those needs with kindness and compassion. Languages were put into writing communities were developed and Christians shared the mercy of Jesus so that the truth of the gospel would impact human hearts and move them from indifference, from vindictive judgment and turn them towards mercy towards their fellow man. It's changed our world. It's changed our world. It's got a long ways to go, but it's done a profound and remarkable thing as love for others, compassion, mercy to the destitute, as these Christian ideas have shaped our culture. Much of what we take for granted today in Western culture has been shaped by this idea of mercy, seen in God through Jesus, extending mercy to sinners like you and I. Mercy transforms. You know, now as we, as we wrap this up this morning, I want you to notice this. There's something staggering about this passage. This blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What's staggering is the implicit warning that those who don't show mercy won't receive it. There's a warning here. In chapter 18 of Matthew, Jesus makes this explicit. Jesus tells a parable about a servant who is forgiven a debt that he could not repay. But after he's forgiven, this servant went and held a fellow servant by the throat for 20 bucks, and he threw him in prison. So he got his un, you know, unpayable debt forgiven, but then he holds hostage someone for $20. And at the end of the parable, we read the words of the master to his servant. And Jesus, he says this, 
Jesus says this, speaking about the, the master of the servant. He says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me for mercy. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Let that land on you this morning. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Christ City, in this world that's created by God, that's been sustained by God, that's been given mercy behind, beyond comprehension by God, there is a mortal sin. And that sin is to look at God's goodness and to take as much of it as you can get of his kindness towards you, but to refuse to forgive, to refuse to love, and to show mercy to others. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for only they shall receive mercy. The Sermon on the Mount, it turns on this promise that Jesus is a king who has come and who is coming again. He's a king whose mercy is richly for us now in Christ Jesus, but who one day will call in every outstanding debt. It is only those who respond to God's mercy now and are changed by it, who are made human by it, that will receive the mercy of God when Jesus returns. For the rest, it will be judgment. It's a hard truth of this passage. It's a hard truth of the Sermon on the Mount. So here's my question. Where are you at this morning? How are you doing with this? Jesus has come to you and me. He's seen us in our suffering. He's taken it on himself. He's willingly died so that we could be forgiven and transformed. Have you received it? Have you cried out to him for that mercy, for that grace, to work in your heart until you change you? Are you being changed by it right now as you think richly and deeply on the gospel, on the good news about the mercy of Jesus for you? Or are you becoming cold to that message of God's mercy for you right now and starting to harden your heart towards those around you? If you're like me, you're probably struggling with this. So here's my challenge to you. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus now. Pray. Get on your knees and pray with brothers and sisters in the church. Ask God to work on your hearts, to convict you, to change you, to show you the depths of his gospel and his love. And to transform you by it to become merciful as Jesus is mercy, merciful. You know, we have a few times throughout the week that we gather for prayer. Once on Tuesday mornings uh, down at 3rd and Burrard Street at the Starbucks there. We also are doing this pre-gathering prayer thing. Those are awesome times to get together and to cry out that God would pour out his spirit. To make us different. To convict us and to change us. To become more like Jesus here in this city. To be a light to those around us of the goodness of his mercy in Christ Jesus. So pray, seek Christ. And then next, take a step of faith. Who has God placed in your life who he wants you to show mercy towards right now? Is there someone that you can think of that you know you need to forgive? Is there someone that you can think of that you know you need, to, you need to reach out to them? You need to walk across this room at the end of the gathering and you need to see how you can help to serve them, to care for them, to show them mercy. 
Is there someone you need to befriend in their suffering? Is there a ministry that maybe you have on your heart that you need to start volunteering in? Look, we don't need more admiration for merciful people. We need to become merciful people through Jesus. It all starts with the gospel. It all starts with worshiping and delighting and reveling and giving thanks to God for the mercy that he's shown to us in Jesus. And only then will we be changed from a worldly empathy to be invited and respond to the invitation of this beatitude to a rich blessing that makes us merciful as God has made mercy towards us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you with our arms outstretched. And Lord, we ask, would you, would you work in us? And would you do something by your Holy Spirit to convict us deeply of this and to make us more like Jesus? Lord, it all starts with your gospel. Would you show us your beauty? Would you show us more and more and help us to comprehend the depth of the love of Jesus for us? Would it transform our lives and make us merciful as he is merciful? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.